Ladies and gentlemen, if I may have your attention, please, as uh, coffee has been served. It's a, a great pleasure to introduce a distinguished lecture for the program. Uh, Professor Susan, Susan Herman uh, holds the chair of Centennial Professor of Law at Brooklyn Law School. She focuses not only on constitutional law, criminal procedure, but is an expert on law governing uh, 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 terrorism, her current book, Taking Liberties, the War on Terror and the Erosion of American Democracy. We had a very good conversation at dinner about a major project that she's undertaking as the president of the American Civil Liberties Union, which is a very important organization. We do not always agree on everything with the ACLU, but we are very happy about those things we do agree on and the work that they do and the work that they're undertaking on mass incarceration, which is, I think, a great blot on American society, society is such a huge percentage of our population is languishing in prison. And to speak to you this evening on the question, is freedom of speech dying? Susan. Good evening. Thank you, Tom, for that very nice introduction, and thank you for the invitation to be here with you all tonight. It's a great pleasure. Uh, so Tom thought that it would be nice to have a provocative title, but I'm not, in fact, here to bury the First Amendment, because I think we all know last week and this week that the First Amendment is alive and well. Uh, on my way down to Washington today, I passed through Philadelphia. Okay, what have you seen so far in the way of uh, protests at the Democratic National Convention? Any examples? Okay, a lot, right? All the birdie people. Five to 10,000 environmentalists yesterday marching in Philadelphia. Uh, there's one of my favorite plans. Somebody says that they're going to have a fart in, and apparently the organizers will supply the beans to, to make that possible. So, you know, that's what's coming up with the Democratic National Convention. It's really an example of the, you know, the, that dissent is thriving in the United States. And of course, in Cleveland last week at the Republican National Convention, they also had some protesters. Although, as people say, because they're not as close to Washington and New York and a lot of other metro, major, metropolitan areas, they didn't have quite the numbers. But they did have quite a variety of protesters, including um, you know, Black Lives Matter, Citizens for Trump, uh, Code Pink. Did you see their proposal was to build a wall around Donald Trump? <laughs> <laughs> so you know, a lot of different protesters there. And um, what I wanted to show you here... I have a very nice slide here of the Republican con convention last week. You see all the police in front, and what are the police doing at a, a, con a convention? Of course, they're there in case you know, there are riots you know, to keep order. So um, it turns out that there were all, well, all this dissent, all these protesters at the convention in Cleveland, and it was really, I think it was a very good week for the First Amendment. And what you may not know is that behind the scenes, one of the reasons that the convention worked so well and that there was a lot of dissent was that the ACLU of Ohio had brought a lawsuit in June against the Cleveland police. I see a couple of people nodding, and interesting, right? And challenging the plan that the Cleveland police had for how to contain and control protest at the convention. So there were people in Cleveland whose job it was to worry about what if, you know, what if you had demonstrators who were getting unruly and wouldn't disperse when you told them so, and what if they came in the wrong place, and what if, what if. So what Cleveland had done was they declared uh, an event zone of 3.5 square miles. Now inside the event zone, there's very high security. Everything's contraband, including very often the you know, signs that people want to bring in if they have a stick. And it's just really hard, you know, there's not going to be a lot of demonstration there. 
In addition, they had very limited parade routes. They were being really slow at issuing permits. And it really seemed like they were really trying to contain the dissent. Does that sound to you consistent with the First Amendment? Okay, not altogether. Okay, well, that's what the ACLU of Ohio thought. So the, uh, they brought a lawsuit on behalf of three different organizations, Citizens for Trump, an Ohio Homelessness Coalition, and another thing that was called you know, Ohio Activism or something like that. All three organizations had had particular problems with the plan that they had, their own proposal for their own activities at the convention. And so the, the ACLU joined these three different groups to bring a lawsuit about whether or not the police plan for the Cleveland Convention violated the First Amendment. Now, one of the things, in addition to having this event zone, the Cleveland police had forecast, I think quite correctly, that people who wanted to protest were going to be very frustrated by not being, being forced to be way outside, away from the action to have their demonstration, or not being allowed the parade route that they wanted. So they were preparing, they were equipping themselves to conduct 1,000 arrests per day. Now, we have seen conventions where that happened, right? We can all imagine the pictures from the 68 Democratic Convention where the police were beating in heads, and yeah, there were major arrests and terrible problems. Well, one thing that the ACLU pointed out was that Philadelphia's plan was that if demonstrators refused to disperse, they would give them tickets. They wouldn't arrest them. So one question is, do you really need to do this? Do you need to have a three-and-a-half square mile event zone to keep protest outside of? Do you really need to plan to arrest everybody? Isn't this really overkill? Well, the federal judge agreed, and so Cleveland ended up in negotiations with the ACLU, reducing the size of the event zone, having more parade routes, more parade permits. And as a result, did the fears of the Cleveland police come true? You know how many people were arrested at the Republican National Convention over the course of the four days? 24. Okay, so, you know, that doesn't just happen. It doesn't, you know, the police, it was, some of it was good policing. They figured out how to get police on bicycles, and they did a lot of really good things that meant that they were not being provocative and butting heads and trying to really, you know, put the protesters on a leash. But one reason why I think this happened is that not only was the ACLU available to bring this lawsuit before the convention, as opposed to complaining after the convention that things had happened, but the federal court, the federal judge who agreed, was in a position to do that because of 100 years of history of enforcing the First Amendment. And a lot of that is history that involves the ACLU. Uh, the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, was founded in 1920, right after World War I, by a very unlikely coalition of Progressives, anarchists, libertarians, liberals, communists, labor organizers, um, social workers, conscientious objectors, all of whom had you know, a lot of ideas in common about the power of individuals to be able to say what they wanted as opposed to the government being able to tell you what to say. Um, the theme that I have tonight, you know, having just told you that dissent is alive and well, which I think is true, what I wanted to talk to you tonight about are the things not only to celebrate about the First Amendment, but to fear for the First Amendment, and the things that could cause our freedom of speech to die, you know, the death of a thousand cuts, which is, I think, you know, how it would happen. And the way that that happens, as Justice Louis Brandeis, one of the great 20th century heroes of the First Amendment said, the greatest dangers to liberty lurk in insidious encroachment by men of zeal, well-meaning but without understanding. Now that to me, that's the Cleveland police, right? They meant very well. They really wanted to keep peace in Cleveland. And they wanted to overdo it, you know, like better safe than sorry. And so they really wanted to create all these things that they were pretty sure were going to prevent disturbances. 
And that has been the history of the First Amendment. There has been some reason why somebody at some level of government, the city as in Cleveland, the states, the federal government, as I'm about to tell you in World War I, some reason why the government wants to either make exceptions to the First Amendment or really limit individual expression in the interest of some other kind of interest. So the interest that I want to talk to you about, I think I want to talk about three different kinds of governmental interests tonight. One is national security and patriotism, where we're going to start with World War I. The other is the connection between free speech and privacy, which will get us into issues of surveillance. And the final one is speech on campus. So um, I want to start again with World War I, because the First Amendment has never done very well in time of war. And if you think that the reason that we have free speech is that it was written into the Constitution in the 18th century, well, really, the First Amendment was not enforced. It was pretty hollow until the 20th century. And here's some examples of how that happened. So during World War I, one thing that Congress did was they passed the Espionage Act of 1917. Now, the Espionage Act prohibited some things that really should be a crime, like going to the enemy and telling them all our secrets. But it was also very broadly and vaguely worded. So it covered a lot more than that. Another theme that you see, when the government gets nervous at any level about things, they start laying out dragnets, which to me is like the Cleveland police again. How do we make sure there aren't disturbances? Well, let's set out a really big area where demonstrators aren't allowed to go. How do we make sure that nobody is going to undermine the war effort? Well, we set out a really big statute telling people what they can't say. Not only that, but the Congress then passed the Sedition Act of 1918. And let me read to you, I, you may not be able to read the first sentence there, but let me read this to you and look at how broad this is. Whoever, when the United States is at war, shall willfully utter, print, write, or publish any disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language about the form of government of the United States, or the Constitution of the United States, or the military or naval forces of the United States, or the flag of the United States, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, how many people are having First Amendment concerns about this language? Okay, should people during World War I have had a First Amendment right to say they disagreed with the war? They disagreed with the draft? They didn't like you know, how things were going on? Well, World War I was very controversial, and there was a great deal of dissent. There were a lot of people who demonstrated and spoke against the war for a number of different reasons. Now, the man you see in the lower left-hand corner there, Eugene Debs, who you may know was the Bernie Sanders of his day, he ran for president five times as the Socialist Party candidate. And he, was, uh, he objected strenuously to the Espionage Act. He thought that it was a real problem in terms of um, constraints on freedom of speech. So this apparently was his favorite speaking position, the leaning over. So there's another one. Uh, so he was prosecuted for his speech against the Espionage Act. He was prosecuted under the Sedition Act. Uh, This is, in 1919, this is the Supreme Court case that upholds his conviction under the Espionage Act, uh, I'm sorry, under the Sedition Act for criticizing the Espionage Act. Um, ultimately, when the Sedition Act was repealed after World War I ended, his sentence was commuted. But you know, that, that was one of the first times in 1919 where you can see, and a lot of young people don't know this today, that we locked up people. We criminally prosecuted people and locked them up for what they said in criticism of the government. Here's another example, another 1919 case involving um, Charles Schenck, and um, he was prosecuted under the Espionage Act for distributing a leaflet arguing that the draft during World War I was unconstitutional. 
His belief was that the draft was involuntary servitude and the government should not have the right to you know, impress people. The United States charged him under the Espionage Act, not just the Sedition Act, on the theory that his criticism interfered with the enlistment and recruit recruitment of people for the war. Now, what he said was he wasn't trying to convince anybody to disobey you know, draft notices. He was asking people to sign petitions arguing against the draft. And so he argued he wasn't really doing anything that compromised the United States' interest. He was just expressing his own point of view. Well, 1919, you see at the top there, long live the Constitution of the United States. His reading was government can't force, them, force anybody to fight wars if they don't want to, his point of view. So he was convicted, and um, this is the case in 1919, where the Supreme Court affirmed his conviction, saying that, well, you know, even if nothing happened, even if he was just talking about signing petitions, what he did created a clear and present danger of interference with the war effort. Okay, so you're beginning to see why in 1920, the people who gathered together to form the ACLU were concerned. And one of the first things that the ACLU took on, this is a 1921 pamphlet, was trying to give the First Amendment some heart. You know, it was a very nice on parchment that you have a right to free speech, but it turned out in World War I that you didn't have a right to free speech if you were saying things that the government did not want you to say. So since 1920, virtually every First Amendment case in the Supreme Court, virtually every major case the ACLU has played a significant role in. Here is the first case that the ACLU argued in the Supreme Court, Benjamin Gitlow, and this was not just the federal government that was into, you know, let's not let people say things that are dangerous and unpopular. Benjamin Gitlow also, like um, Schenck, was a socialist. And he published a left-wing manif manifesto and was prosecuted by New York State for a crime called criminal anarchy. Now, in 1925, you see here, yeah, 25 is when it was decided, even though it was argued two years before. The Supreme Court upheld the conviction once again, but the Supreme Court did something very important in this case for the first time, which they said that the First Amendment also applies to the states. Before that, the First Amendment had only been considered to limit the, first, the, the federal government in terms of whether or not the federal government could limit speech. So it's a very important idea that it is also possible to argue now that the states are violating your First Amendment rights. So Gitlow lost, but that was a step along the way. Here's another example, another ACLU uh, argument uh, in Whitney versus California. This is a 1927 opinion. And Anita Whitney, there's a recent you know, interesting biography of her that was published by Flip Strum at the um, Wilson Center. And uh, what she did was she was essentially trying to organize people for the Communist Party. And she was prosecuted for a crime in California called criminal syndicalism just for her membership in the Communist Party. So here again, the Supreme Court upheld the California conviction. They did not hold that it violated the First Amendment. But there were a couple of justices in concurrences, Louis Brandeis and Oliver Wendell Holmes, who began to talk about the First Amendment and how this was concerning if people couldn't just express their ideas or join together in organizations. And Whitney, the um, concurrences in Whitney, if you're ever looking for good First Amendment language, there are some really quite amazing quotations from both um, Brandeis and, and Holmes uh, in, the, in their concurrences there. Uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes says in his concurrence, he says, you really believe in freedom of speech if you were willing to allow it to men whose opinions seem to you wrong and even dangerous. 
Okay, so that's you know beginning to start to think about the First Amendment and what it really means. Next state prosecution, moving ahead in time, this is a 1937 uh, Supreme Court case in Herndon versus Lowry. Now, Angelo Herndon, who you see here, you may be able to tell from the slide, he's an African-American. And he became interested in the Communist Party because he thought it was the best chance to fight both racial segregation and economic injustice. You may not know that um, the, um, a lot of the racial justice cases in the 1930s, including the famous Scottsboro trials, the Scottsboro boys were represented by the Communist Party. And the Communist Party was really trying to make inroads into American thinking by taking on the issue of racial justice when not many other people were. So Angelo Herndon became convinced that the Communist Party was a good way to you know, try to accomplish those goals. So he attempted to organize black and white industrial, industrial workers um, in Atlanta in 1932. And he was prosecuted under a Georgia statute and charged with insurrection. The idea of insurrection was that he was advocating the overthrow of the government by arguing you know, in, fa in favor of communist ideas. The statute in Georgia was a capital statute. He was not, in fact, charged with you know, a capital offense, but he could have been. He was sentenced to 18 to 20 years. His case got up to the Supreme Court three different times. And by the time, uh, in 1937, by the time it got there, a divided court found, for the first time in 1937, they found that the Georgia law violated the First Amendment, that it just went too far in you know, kind of criminalizing organizational activities. So there's a major development, the Supreme Court finding that a state law, in fact, violated the First Amendment by laying out this dragnet. Is insurrection a good thing to prohibit and punish? Sure. But it was a really broad statute, and what it was covering was labor organizing and you know, becoming a member of the Communist Party. So you know, the First Amendment is on the road. You know, see, from 1919 to 1937, there's a lot of progress there. Now, by World War II, and I think this is one of the most amazing decisions the Supreme Court has ever decided, but by World War II, the Supreme Court had come a long way in their First Amendment theories. And have you heard of the Barnett case? Okay, these two girls, Marie and Gathy Barnett, were children in West Virginia, and their parents were Jehovah's Witnesses. And where they went to school, um, they were required to pledge allegiance to the flag. And their parents taught them that it was a violation of their religion to pledge allegiance to the flag because it was like you know, a, a, an idol. It was like, you know, a physical thing that you were swearing to instead of just what was required by their religion. So Marie and Gathy declined to pledge allegiance to the flag as instructed by their parents. Uh, they, they were then expelled from school, and their parents were then prosecuted for not sending their children to school. Kind of double bind there. So, of course, the argument that the ACLU made, this is the ACLU amicus curiae brief, the argument that the ACLU made was that this was not only freedom of speech, but religious freedom, and that the Barnett family had a right to decide whether or not these girls had to pledge allegiance to the flag, or whether they could follow their own religious beliefs. Now, what I think is quite remarkable is that in 1943, June 14, 1943, in the middle of World War II, the Supreme Court decides an opinion saying, yes, they do have the First Amendment right to decline to salute the flag. Isn't that amazing? And you know what June 14th is? Flag Day. And the court did that on purpose. They issued the decision on Flag Day. Because, Robert Jackson says, writing another wonderful opinion where if you want to, you know, again, think about what the First Amendment means, really eloquent exposition of what the First Amendment means. Robert Jackson says, if there is any fixed star in our constitutional constellation, 
it is that no official, high or petty, can prescribe what shall be orthodox in politics, nationalism, religion, or other matters of opinion, or for citizens to confess by word or act their faith therein. Okay, so there's the idea, and again, amazing that in the middle of World War II, the Supreme Court is saying, don't talk to us about patriotism. Clearly, that was West Virginia's argument. You, know, you have to salute the flag. It's a time of war. We have to have national solidarity. And the Supreme Court is coming down on the side of there's a more important value here than solidarity. And that value is, Robert Jackson says, what we're fighting for in World War II, which is the individual freedom of conscience. So the Supreme Court moves on then, and since from 1943, I'm going to skip now, we'll skip the whole McCarthy era, that was complicated, but we'll skip on to Texas versus Johnson um, in 1989, where Mr. Johnson had been convicted by the state of Texas for burning a flag as part of a, a protest that he wanted to make. And the Supreme Court in a five to four decision, you can look at the five and four if you're interested in doing it, said no, the First Amendment gives Mr. Johnson a right to burn a flag. He can express himself. The First Amendment means he can use words or he can use actions. He wasn't really hurting anything. Now you can imagine again, in the same way that West Virginia was really into patriotism and that Congress was really into anti-sedition during World War I, Texas was reacting to a very strong visceral reaction that a lot of people had to the fact that the flag is such an important symbol. And the Supreme Court was able to look at that and as in the Barnett case say, well, you know, we don't really want to elevate the physical flag above our principles. And therefore, if what Mr. Johnson wants to do, you know, we may not agree with him, but if what he wants to do is to express his protest by burning a flag, he has the right to do that. Um, since then, the Supreme Court has been somewhat consistent in upholding the right of people to say things no matter how obnoxious. Is your eye caught by the lower right? Pray for more dead soldiers. Okay, you know about the Westboro Baptist Church? Okay, so uh, the Westboro Baptist Church, Fred Phelps, goes to funerals, of uh, military funerals, and they uh, hold signs up for the families to see at these funerals, explaining to the families that the reason that their sons, I think it was all sons, have died in battle is that the United States is not sufficiently homophobic and that God is causing sold American soldiers to be killed because of the fact that we let gay people be in the army. Okay, you know, obnoxious in every which way. Um, I was actually in the court on, this was a 2011 case called Snyder versus Phelps, where uh, there were a number of states that were trying to prohibit the Westboro Baptist Church from demonstrating anywhere near a funeral. You know, obviously you can't be right in the face of the family, but you just say, you can't say that, that's just too awful. And uh, the Supreme Court, the ACLU, filed an amicus brief saying we're holding our noses and we're saying they have a right to say it. You know, our view is that if you say we're going to make an exception for this terrible thing, then these ideas are going to fester. Better to let them out in the air when other people can say that is a terrible idea, we disagree with it. Uh, Justice Samuel Alito wrote a dissent in that case saying, oh my God, you, know, you can say anything you want, but you can't say that. And a frequent theme in the First Amendment cases is that everyone has their own thing that's just too much. You can say whatever you want, but you can't say that. You can't refuse to salute the flag. You can't burn the flag. Oh, come on. You know, and anything else is fine, but not that. And I'm sure I don't need to tell you that if you add up everybody's that's, yeah, there's no First Amendment left. So I think the Supreme Court is right in Snyder versus Phelps to say no matter how obnoxious this is, what these people were trying to say, the principle is more important, that the government regulation of the First Amendment has to be neutral and can't be based on uh, 
whether or not what people are saying is popular or who agrees or dis disagrees. There's also a photo there in the upper right-hand corner of demonstrators outside Planned Parenthood. And the ACLU often agrees with Planned Parenthood on some of the reproductive freedom policies, but they're not happy with us when we defend the right of protesters outside abortion clinics. We do think time, place, and manner restrictions are appropriate. You know, the people can be required to step back and not be right in the face of young women going to a clinic. But we feel that they have the right to express what they want to express. Because our that, you can't say that, or you can't say it to those people because they won't like it. Once you start losing that principle, you know, where are you? Okay, so there's a very brief history of the First Amendment in the 20th century, right? And it sort of gives you the sense that starting with 1919, where it was not possible to go into the federal courts and get them to say, you can't say, don't say that, because that violates the First Amendment. The courts hadn't said that. It wasn't a possibility. And we build from there through the Herndon case, through the Barnett case, through um, the Snyder versus Phelps case, uh, up until you know, current times, up until the uh, federal judge in Ohio saying, no, this, the courts have to be the repository of protection of the First Amendment. Most of the time, you'll notice, when people are saying these things that they're prosecuted for, it's because they're saying something that's very unpopular. Most of their neighbors disagree. The people in Texas did not like the fact that Johnson was burning a flag. The people in West Virginia hated the fact that the Barnett girls were not saluting the flag. Okay, so what the Supreme Court has said is, you know, we are counter-majoritarian in the federal courts. We don't have to get elected. And it is our job to enforce the First Amendment by saying we don't care whether or not you like what other people are saying. They get to decide what they're going to say. You get to decide what you're going to say. So um, I now want to bring forward the Espionage Act because I told you that the Sedition Act of 1918 was in fact repealed after World War I, and that's never altogether come back, so I think that's quite a good thing. You, know, you are allowed to say, I don't believe in this war, or I don't like what the president is doing. But the Espionage Act is still with us. Um, it's been reworded, it's been amended a number of times, and as it happens, Barack Obama, under his administration, the, uh, his administration has prosecuted more people under the Espionage Act than all the other presidents combined. I believe the number is eight, might be seven, but I think it's eight. Eight? You just looked it up? Okay. So here's three examples. Chelsea Manning, who was the person, who, uh, the WikiLeaks person, who, who whistleblower for WikiLeaks. Thomas Drake was a whistleblower with the NSA who concluded that the NSA was wasting a whole lot of taxpayer money because they were trying to uh, do surveillance using algorithms that didn't work. And he, he had some troubles. Look him up if you're interested in some really interesting stories. John Kiriakou worked for the CIA, and he was the person who first told ABC News that, in fact, there was some torture going on with the involvement of the CIA. He ended up being prosecuted under the Espionage Act, and he spent a few years in a federal prison, whereas the people who were doing the torturing never spent, were prosecuted for anything. So the espionage is still with us, and I think it's very interesting that what it's being used for these days is whistleblowers. Okay, so we'll continue with that. Okay, so when I say the word whistleblower, who else comes to your mind? Okay, there he is, right? <laughs> okay, so Edward Snowden also is under charge under the Espionage Act. If he sets foot in the country, he's also going to be charged. And these sentences are very long under the Espionage Act. Um, Snowden, of course, is a very controversial figure. Some people think he's a patriot and that he's essentially a, a dissenter 
who's gotten the American people to understand what the government was doing without their knowledge. And some people think he's a traitor because it's not really a good idea for an individual person to make a decision about what's in the national interest. But this now brings us to the sort of the other, uh, the, our, the war of the day, the quote war, the war on terror. Now you all know that after 9-11, there were a lot of changes in the law. And this is not unlike the reactions during World War I and World War II, that we're at war and therefore we have to change the rules. You, you have to lose a little freedom in order to be secure. So you know the USA Patriot Act. Did you know that this is actually the name of the act? The name of the act is Uniting and Strengthening America by, by Providing Appropriate Tools Required to Intercept and Obstruct Terrorism. And USA Patriot is just an acronym for the actual name of the act. Now the Patriot Act, when I first printed out my copy to read, it was about 300 pages. Okay, it went, really went on for quite a while. And it's amendments of hundreds of sections of previous law. One of the things that uh, I think most people know about that the Patriot Act did was to increase surveillance capabilities of the government. But that, and we'll talk about that a little, but that wasn't the only thing that the Patriot Act did. There are a whole lot of other ways in which the Patriot Act set out to provide the government with appropriate tools required to intercept and obstruct terrorism. Now, I was thought that that title, in addition to somebody who stayed up all night working that one out, right? <laughs> Uh, that's quite a bit of swagger because this is October 26th, 2001. Now, how in the world did anybody figure out what you needed to do to intercept and obstruct terrorists when nobody even really had figured out what had happened on 9-11 or what had led to it? So there were a lot of things that had been lying around that were sort of Department of Justice wish list things. So I want to tell you about one uh, particular provision that is not talked about a lot. This is not a surveillance provision. But it's a provision that expanded a law that criminalized providing material support to terrorists. Now, is it a bad thing to provide material support to terrorists? Sure, if what you mean is you shouldn't give them bombs or guns or money, obviously. But you know, there are all sorts of other laws that already cover that. And what the material support law did was it attempted to bring back the period of time at which you could prosecute somebody for terrorism, even if they had not done anything that resulted in anyone getting hurt, even if they had not attempted anything, even if they were not a part of a conspiracy. And in the words that I've highlighted here, one of the things that you can do to be guilty of material support of terrorists is to provide expert advice or assistance to terrorists. Expert advice or assistance. Okay, if you're teaching them how to make bombs, of course. But what else does that mean? Well, there was a really interesting challenge in the Supreme Court in a case that a lot of people don't know about called Holder versus Humanitarian Law Project. Tom knows it. Anyone else heard of it? Okay, it should be known more widely than it is. The Humanitarian Law Project was a group of peace activists. And what they did was they went around to countries where there were serious you know, prospects of civil war. And they would talk to like the Kurds in Turkey or the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka. And they would try to explain to them how they could actually use peaceful dispute resolution methods like the UN programs and different things rather than having an armed insurrection. So essentially what they were doing was they were trying to talk terrorists out of being terrorists by sort of showing them a peaceful way in which they could air their grievances and get something done. Well, when the, the Patriot Act expanded the material support provisions, the humanitarian law project people looked at this and said, whoa, you know, might the government think that we're providing expert advice or assistance to terrorists? This makes us a little nervous here, because how are we going to raise money, that's always what it's all about, right, from donors if it turns out that they are supporting something that the, somebody in the government might think is terrorist activity? 
So they brought a lawsuit in California that ended up pending for about 10 years. It went through a whole lot of iterations and ultimately came to the Supreme Court. And one of their arguments was that they should not be covered, what they did, talking terrorists out of being terrorists, should not be covered by the material support statute. And their other argument was that if it is, it violates the First Amendment. Well, the Supreme Court, in a 6-3 to three opinion, held that they were wrong, that the statute did cover what they did, and that the First Amendment did not protect their talking to terrorists. Chief Justice Roberts says, plaintiffs may want to speak to these organizations. Whether they may do so under this statute depends on what they say. If plaintiff speech to these groups imparts a specific skill or communicates advice derived from specialized knowledge, for example, training on the use of international law or advice on petitioning the United Nations, then it is barred. Isn't that peculiar? Okay, you don't have any First Amendment right to try to talk terrorists out of being terrorists. And the Supreme Court's view, which is not clear if this was Congress's view, was that Congress intended to make any person believed to be a terrorist radioactive. You're just not allowed to talk to them at all. Justice Sotomayor asked at oral argument, she said, does this mean that you could be prosecuted for teaching a terrorist to play the harmonica? Okay, more seriously, Elena Kagan at the time was not on the Supreme Court. She was Solicitor General, so she was arguing the case. And when she was asked by one of the justices, I think it was Justice Kennedy, she was asked, does this mean that a lawyer could be prosecuted for writing a brief on behalf of a terrorist organization? She obviously had carefully considered this question back at the office, said, yes. Okay, make you nervous? <laughs> okay, so that's Holder versus Humanitarian Law Project. We have to give up a little liberty in order to be secure. And I think the Supreme Court is really overdoing it in that case, but that's, you know, there we are back to Cleveland. You know, how much do you overdo it? How much do you have a dragnet to make sure of what's not happening? Well, in the book that Tom was mentioning, uh, Taking Liberties, one of the things that I did in that book was to try to show how the changes in law post 9-11 affected both ordinary Americans and some other folks. So here is a guy who was a Saudi citizen named Samuel Hussein, and he was a graduate student at the University of Idaho. Um, he was a Muslim, because he came from Saudi Arabia, and he was studying computer science at the University of Idaho. When 9-11 happened, he led a candlelight vigil on the campus in Moscow, Idaho. Anyone ever been to Moscow, Idaho? There you go. Okay, great. Because oh, you know, interesting town. And what he was trying to convince people was that some Muslims, in fact, are, you know, are, are moderate, and that the people who were the 9-11 hijackers did not speak for all of Islam. Uh, he also volunteered to um, have run a chat room for the Islamic Assembly, which was a group not on any terrorist watch list. They were just an Islamist group. And what they were doing is they were running a chat room and a website where they were trying to give anybody who read it all different points of view about Islam. So they had, you know, here's what moderate Islamists believe and all different articles about that. They also posted a couple of things that people who believed in jihad had written about why jihad is the correct thing to do and a whole range of things. Well, the reason that Samuel Hussein ended up being prosecuted for material support of terrorism was that another power that the government had dealt itself post 9-11 was the power to rake through everybody's financial records. You share the records with the bank, no privacy, you, you know, they can look. So uh, Sami had actually invested some money in various charities for a wealthy uncle of his. So the government became very suspicious because one of their theories after 9-11 was that the money that was supporting terrorist groups probably came from mosques in Brooklyn. Yeah, how else would the Saudis get money? Uh, so first they charged him with, um, with 
providing material support to al-Qaeda, and they didn't have the proof of that, so then they decided maybe he was providing material support to Hamas, another terrorist group. They didn't have any proof of that. So then they switched to he was providing support to Chechnyan rebels. And when that also didn't work out, what they tried to argue at trial was that he was providing material support to terrorists by posting on the chat room statements of jihadists that might cause somebody to agree and give money to al-Qaeda. Okay, does that seem to you to be a problem with the First Amendment? Okay, his, his excellent lawyer in Ohio, in, in Idaho, David Nevin, made an argument to the judge that the prosecution on mat for the material support prosecution should be dismissed because it violated the First Amendment. And the judge said, motion denied opinion to follow. Well, I'll tell you, the opinion never followed because that opinion does not write. At the trial, uh, the government's own witnesses, the prosecution witnesses, um, testified that the BBC published similar kinds of jihadist statements on their website, that you know, this was just you know, the things that everybody did, that this really was not a problem. Uh, at one point, apparently, they, they, it was argued that there had been a sub, sub sort of link where you could click on the statement and go, get immediately to some place where you could donate money, but apparently that had been disabled before Samuel Hussein ever got involved in this. So I am pleased to tell you that an average jury in Idaho of retired forest workers and so forth got the First Amendment argument and acquitted him of material support. Another amazing story, right? Just in Idaho and, you know. <laughs> so, you know, they got it. You know, you have to be able to say things and to explain whatever people want to say about Islam, you know, no matter whether you like it or not. But that's the kind of thing that was happening um, when, because of the material support laws and the combination of that and this massive surveillance of people's financial affairs. It's again, a case, again, that most people have not heard of, you know, that this could be done. And I think that's just a real abuse. I think you know, somebody really made a mistake. Uh, they just didn't have the evidence. Um, okay, so there's the material support law, which kind of directly attacks the First Amendment. There are a number of other provisions of the Patriot Act that I think are also very problematic and get to the First Amendment including a lot of charitable giving. But uh, lacking time, I'll refer you if you're interested to this. in this. The um, ACLU did a report in 2009 called Blocking Faith, Freezing Charity. And it was interviews with Muslims all over the country about how terrified they were that the FBI kept showing up at their door and saying, why did you contribute to that charity? And you know, not a terrorist charity, just a Muslim charity. We're contributing to charity is one of the pillars of Islam. You know, it's something you're supposed to do to be charitable. And I think that actually this um, whole initiative was counterproductive because what a lot of these people said, the Muslims around the country, was that they would like to think that they would help the FBI in an investigation, but they had begun to feel like the FBI were really their enemies and they didn't want to talk to them. And they were not going to go over and look around and see if there was anything that they wanted to report. Okay, so the other thing I've said, in addition to the patriotism, national security, on the other side of the First Amendment, don't we have to give up some of our free speech in order to be safe? I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, not, not in these ways, not in these dragnet kinds of ways where we're preventing people from also saying things that are not dangerous. The other problem, of course, that Edward Snowden really revealed to us is how much surveillance was going on. Right, that we didn't know about, that the government was just doing, you know, um, gathering all this information. So this is one elaborate um, scheme of how all the metadata collection worked and PRISM and, and so forth, uh, that the uh, FBI and NSA could collect data from the use of servers, et cetera. But I think instead of going through the technical version, let me show you what this pretty much amounts to. Can you see the caption in the back? Get me everything on everybody. <laughs> okay, so, um, that will seem to be the basic theme, you know, at least in terms of metadata. You know what metadata is? 
that's not the, your conversations, but it's the telephone numbers you've called and from which you've received calls. So it's not the content of your conversation, which had different rules. Well, when Bush left office, a lot of people said to me, oh, and you had that Patriot Act, didn't that all go away? And the answer was, no, it didn't. You like that one? Can you see that? Yes, we can. Okay, so Barack Obama's surveillance policies were not really very different from President Bush's surveillance policies. And in fact, uh, some of the metadata collection that Edward Snowden disclosed was beyond what the Bush administration had been doing, and I think also beyond the statute. So here's a case that the Supreme Court decided in 2013, in February, where the ACLU, which had been trying again and again to try to challenge some of these overblown surveillance programs, you know, let's just get everything on everybody. It's another dragnet. If we find out everything on everybody, then we'll, we'll, you know, we'll have the information when we need to put together the dots. Um, not necessarily true. You know, one article I read referred to the government as drowning in data. You, know, you need the algorithms for, for all that information to help. So this was a case that the ACLU brought on behalf of Amnesty International. And this was a challenge to the part of the Patriot Act in um, ex expanded law that did allow the government to look at the content of conversations and emails, as long as you were doing something foreign and it might involve foreign intelligence. So Amnesty International USA, whose home base is in London, was very nervous about this because they talk about a lot of things that might involve foreign intelligence, like how children are being impressed into African armies and you know, just all sorts of things. So they thought it was quite likely that the government was looking at their emails or talking to them on the phone. What difference does it make? Well, you know, the sources at the other end aren't going to talk to you if they're concerned that the government is listening in. Well, in Clapper versus Amnesty International, the Supreme Court decided, a split opinion, five to four, that these people, Amnesty and the other plaintiffs, were not allowed to challenge the covert surveillance program because they couldn't prove that they were being subjected to covert surveillance. Catch-22? You know, I think so. So in fact, Edward Snowden says that reading that decision was one reason why he decided that he was going to have to expose what the government was doing because the courts just weren't doing it. They kept finding procedural excuses for not even looking at the constitutionality of the surveillance programs. After, and you notice February 2013, Snowden's revelations start in June, you know, just a few months later. After those revelations about the metadata, here's another ACLU case, which we called after ourselves, ACLU versus Clapper, challenging all this metadata collection. And when the Second Circuit held, they didn't look at the constitutionality, but they did hold that uh, the statute did not really authorize all of that collection. That led to the USA Freedom Act, eventually. You notice the acronym here. I actually met the young man who stayed up all night working on this one. He said it was fun, and he did it over beer. Uh, <laughs> but what this does is it says that the, all the information, the metadata, is not in the government data banks, but it's in the, um, the company's data banks, and then the government has to work to get a hold of all that. Uh, so what's the big deal? Who cares what the, whether the government knows what telephone numbers you receive? In the ACLU case that I was just telling you about, there was a very interesting affidavit by Edward Felton, who's a computer science professor at Princeton, who said actually metadata is more helpful to the government if they want, just want to know a whole lot than content, because it's structured, it's easy to search. And what can the government tell by looking at the phone numbers you're calling and from which you're getting calls? Well, the reason the ACLU became a plaintiff in this case was that we were a client of Verizon Business Services, which Mr. Snowden told us was turning over all of their customer metadata to the government. And, um, who does the ACLU represent? Well, we represent 
your students who think that your principals are you know, spying on them and re repressing their rights by looking at what they do on the internet. We represent police officers who think that they've been denied a fair hearing, a due process hearing before being disciplined or fired. We represent government employees who might be whistleblowers. Okay, so in the government data bank, there's information that John Doe has called the ACLU number on day one and spoke and the five minute call. The next day, the ACLU number calls that person back and speaks for 45 minutes. Half an hour after that, the ACLU number calls these following three numbers of experts in the following field. Okay, there's so many different ways in which you can put together stories based on telephone numbers. So, why should we care what the government knows about us if we're not doing anything wrong? The first attempt I've seen to try to quantify this was PEN, the Organization of Authors and uh, Writers, Journalists, who uh, surveyed their members and asked, have you curtailed or avoided social media activities? You know, in light of all this surveillance, 28% said they had, another 12% said they'd con seriously considered doing so. 24% deliberately avoided certain topics in phone or email conversations, another 9% seriously considered doing so. 16% avoided writing or speaking about a particular topic, another 11% considered doing so. This is a more recent amnesty poll saying essentially the same thing. People are self-censoring. They're afraid to you know, look up things about Yemen or the Middle East. So there is a tremendous chilling effect because the government, the Americans feel the tension. They may think that you know, we, should just, we need to give up a little privacy in order to be safe. Okay, is it true? I think the claims are very overblown. You look at the claims of what we've gotten out of this, and there's not much evidence that it's very useful. And I think you have to compare the benefits with the costs. Okay, I just want to spend about uh, a couple of minutes now on the school issues because there was another case that the Supreme Court decided, very big First Amendment case, in 1969, I think it is, somewhere around there, involving Mary Beth Tinker, a student in Des Moines Independent Schools who wanted to wear the black armband, that's uh, Mary Beth and her brother. They wanted to wear the armbands to mourn for the, the civilians who had been killed in Vietnam, and the principal told them they weren't allowed to because that might be disruptive of the school. And the Supreme Court said, Constitution doesn't stop at the schoolhouse door. Students do have a right to uh, express their political opinion in school, as long as there's no real reason to think that that's going to be uh, disruptive. Well, that has turned out to be law that is really held. And there are all sorts of schools around the country where the ACLU has done a lot of litigation, which I'm happy to talk about during the Q&A if you want to talk about this. It's an interesting issue where for the most part, the, uh, the courts are very good at saying, no, you have the right to say that. That's what Tinker says. Yes, you can say that even if people don't like it. Yes, you can wear your T-shirt that opposes the gay-straight alliances. Yes, you can wear your T-shirt that supports the gay-straight alliances. Students can express political opinions in school. Where did that hit a wall? The war on drugs. Bong hits for Jesus. What does that mean? Well. Joseph Frederick says he really has no idea. He just put up that sign. This was an Olympics rally in Alaska, and he wanted to get on television. <laughs> the school punished him for holding up this sign, even though it was off campus, on the theory that it was promoting drugs. And the Supreme Court, in a split opinion, said, oh, drugs. Oh, well, he can't say that. OK, you see the exceptions again? Uh, so maybe the last thing that I'm going to leave you with here is that the way that government starts repressing and saying there, there can be an exception here is that the people let them. There was a study done by UCLA of 140,000 college freshmen and their attitudes toward various things, including the First Amendment. And look at this. The second line there, dissent is a critical component of the political process. 
64% of the students said, I agree with that. And there's our political conventions, right? The right to dissent, everybody agrees with that. Colleges have the right to ban extreme speakers from campus, 43% agreed with that. Colleges should prohibit racist, sexist speech on campus, 70% agreed with that. Okay, so how does the First Amendment get chipped away? People start thinking that you can have exceptions and that we take the First Amendment for granted and that whatever it is that is the other thing that we want to do, the thing that um, men of, of good of zeal are telling us that they want to do, all, you know, reasonable goals, those start, start seeming to people properly to outweigh the First Amendment. Um, okay, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave that there. There are a few more things that I would like to say, but that's about the time that I've been allocated for speaking. And so now we can move to Q&A, and I'd love to see whether you want to talk more about the school examples or other things. All, uh, you know, our topic tonight is the First Amendment, but I'm also happy if you want to talk about things other than the First Amendment. Okay, so Tom, do you, do you want to turn to Q&A? Let's get some applause. Oh, uh, <laughs> well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. So there are microphones on either side, and just raise your hand if you want the microphone, and the microphone will be brought to you. So I think the microphone bringers are choosing who to bring the microphones to, so I don't have to point to anybody. And may I ask that when you speak, um, probably stand up so everybody can see and hear you, and if, if, if you could say your name, that would be great. And make it work, right? Hi. Oh, good evening. Uh, first of all, congratulations. It was extremely inspiring. I liked it a lot. Uh, and uh, I would like to ask you, oh, my name is Mauricio. Uh, I would like to ask you, uh, to, what's your view on comparing freedom of speech in the United States and in other countries, especially in Europe? Great question. Um, I, I was just talking to somebody before about how I think there are some constitutional ideals which are clearly American choices and others which I think are probably international. I think a good deal of freedom of speech should be international and there are international human rights laws, the covenant for civil and, and you know, human rights, which in fact does protect freedom of speech. But when I go to Europe, I really run across a lot of difference of opinion about what that means. So um, in France, for example, they're into the concept of laïcité yeah, that they can ban your wearing a headscarf in public, right, because you're, you're not being French then. You're setting yourself apart. And I think our American idea is really very different. We believe in the right of individual conscience to express your own religious beliefs, even if you're wearing something in public that signifies what your religious beliefs are. Um, this is something I've, actually, I've asked exactly your question of people in, uh, recently in Belgium, Switzerland, Germany, Israel, and people, it, it's a very perplexing question whether that should be an international standard or whether in France the situation is different enough that it might be okay for them to have their own French idea of how to be French, which means you know, denying your religious persona in public if they wish that to happen. Um, the other big example that is, I think, a very difficult one is, is it all right for Germany to criminalize denial of the Holocaust? Okay, here, we wouldn't do that, right? You can say anything. But in Germany, you know, is that different? So yeah, I would love to know, you know, maybe we can talk about this later during the, the discussion session, because I think that's just a terrific question, you know, to the extent to which free speech is really a fundamental human value, and to what extent it's a culture-bound American choice. Great question. Next over here. And you are? I'm Cameron. 
Hi. Thank you so much for speaking. Um, so I recently watched the Christian cult film God's Not Dead 2, um, which while being a terrible film, um, was interesting insofar as the villain in the movie is the ACLU. Um, and I wanted to know how the ACLU balances the pretty meaningful tightrope between like partisanship, uh, especially among Christian conservative America, uh, despite ACLU being in favor of religious liberties, how does that kind of public relations aspect work in such an admirable, admirable organization? <laughs> well, I love the way you've asked the question that it's a public relations problem. Um, if you go back home and talk to people about the ACLU, you will find a lot of people, especially in the right-wing blogosphere, saying that the ACLU is a communist organization. Okay, how about it? The ACLU defended a lot of communists early on. Does that mean we're a communist organization? We've also defended the, where do we have them here? The Nazis in Skokie. We defended you know, the Westboro Baptist Church. We defend everybody. We try not to pay any attention to the content. Uh, would you say, for example, that we are not nonpartisan and we are supporting Donald Trump because the ACLU of Ohio represented citizens for Trump about their right to demonstrate at the Republican National Convention? I don't think that's partisan. Everybody has a right for freedom of speech. We've represented not only Democrats, but Republicans and independents and the Socialist Workers Party and you know, all sorts of people when they've had free speech problems. We have an entire page, if you're interested in this, and somebody might also tell you that the ACLU is anti-Christian. We have an entire page that is dedicated to cases in which we have represented Christians. Okay, the reason that people think that and the reason that people might think we're a communist organization is that nobody is ever gonna prosecute you and throw you in jail for saying that you love your mother and apple pie. Okay, who gets prosecuted? The people who are unpopular, like the communists or the neo-Nazis or the Klan. We've represented the Klan and the Westboro Baptist Church. And the people who tend to have problems with their exercise of religious liberty are not Christians. Because in most places in this country, schools, you know, governments, etc., understand what you need to do to, to be an observant Christian. And they'll work around you. They'll give you Christmas off. If you have a different holiday, a different religion, you're going to have a problem because you're not necessarily going to be able to observe your religion because people may not understand what it is and what it requires of you and how to accommodate it. So I do think that it's, it's a public relations problem because you know, we, do, you know, we do the best we can and sometimes we do have to hold our noses about the speech that we defend. We do our best to be content neutral. I think where the um, people who are anti-ACLU, I've given you here some of my favorite anti-ACLU t-shirts. <laughs> American Commie Lib Union. <laughs> Uh, what is this, Anti-American Communist Lawyers Union. And so, you know, there it is. You know, we try our best to be content neutral and defend everybody. Let me tell you one of my favorite stories. I, I, actually, I think I have to tell you two stories connected here in terms of the, the public relations. So um, there was a school in Northern California that was celebrating Cinco de Mayo because they had a lot of Hispanic students. So they were going to have uh, celebrations on that day. And a number of students who were not of Hispanic descent decided that they didn't like that, that they thought, you know, it, it's American first. And so they wanted to do an America, love it or leave it thing. So they wanted to wear their T-shirts with the American flag saying kind of America, love it or leave it. You know, we don't want to celebrate Cinco de Mayo in an American school. Why should I have to dial one for English or, you know. Uh, and so that was their view. So the principal had told them that they couldn't wear their T-shirts to class because it might be disruptive. Okay, lawyers, anybody thinking that's inconsistent with Tinker? Of course it is. So the right-wing blogosphere was full of, oh, the ACLU is so hypocritical. You know, they'll defend the rights of Muslims to speak, but where are they when the American flag needs protecting? 
So somebody at Truthout or one of those organizations checked into it. And where was the ACLU? The ACLU of Northern California had already written a letter to the principal saying, let the kids wear their t-shirts. It's tinker. Okay, so, you know, content neutral to our best of our ability. So here's my favorite one. In Virginia, there was um, a football team, as is common in high schools, and before the football games, uh, they, they, um, school wanted to have a denominational prayer, a Christian prayer, to, in order to help you know, get God's help for the football team. Now, this is a mistake that a lot of schools make. They don't quite get the Establishment Clause. If the students want to pray, that's fine. That's their First Amendment right. But a public school cannot choose a religion and impose it on all the students and make the students who don't have that religion uncomfortable. So the ACLU of Virginia wrote to the principal and said, you know, you really can't do that. You can't have a denominational prayer that's sponsored by the school. If the students want to do that, that would be different. Well, evidently, the school had a lawyer because the lawyer said, you know, you better not do it because they're right, and if they sue us, we'll have to pay the attorney's fees. So the principal very grudgingly said, oh, all right, all right, we won't have a denominational prayer um, at the football game that everybody has to, you know, to be participating in. So there was a group of students um, in the high school who decided that they needed to wear anti-ACLU t-shirts to the football game to protest the fact that the denominational prayer was not being allowed. Okay, the principal then said, no, no, you can't wear those t-shirts to the football game because that's going to be disruptive. Okay, so the ACLU of Virginia, do you see it coming? <laughs> Wrote to the principal and said, let the kids wear their anti-ACLU t-shirts. <laughs> okay, so you know, we try. But yeah, thank you. I, I think it, yeah, people say to me, well, why don't people know this more often? Why don't they know this about the ACLU? Well, you know, <laughs> we can't require people to know things, but, you know, we did publish this. We now have an entire page on our website just to talk about. We do, too, represent Christians when they need defending. We've represented a, a high school valedictorian who wanted to talk about the meaning of her faith in her valedictory address, and the school said, no, you can't do that. They, uh, said, yeah, you're not getting it. A student can. The school can't. A student can. So... Thank you for the question. Next. <laughs> Microphone bearers. Hello. You're, you're Jim, right? I'm Jim, yes, you. were sitting you. at my table. <laughs> uh, just out of curiosity, what is the perspective of the ACAU on the Citizens United decision by the Supreme Court? On Citizens United? Okay, well, our policy, which um, it, it, we sort of bridge the gap. Everybody hates us for our policies. We believe that the First Amendment protects issues ad issue advertising. Um, the ACLU is a corporation, and we believe that we should have the right to publish an ad saying, you know, tell you know, President Trump or Clinton to close Guantanamo or, or whatever. So, you know, that we do think that. We do think that um, laws that prohibit campaign contributions are acceptable. We think those are fine and that they do not violate the First Amendment. We did not argue in um, Citizens United that corporations are people, but I think that corporations have to be able to speak because people listen to them. And so, you know, nobody likes our position. <laughs> We're not absolute enough in any direction. We've uh, debated this issue some 17 times. And one of my favorite lines that I have to tell ACLU crowds all the time is one of my colleagues recently said, if you agree with the ACLU 50% of the no, I'm sorry, if you agree with the ACLU 80% of the time, you should be a member. If you agree with the ACLU 50% of the time, you should be on the board. <laughs> so, you know, they, it's a rowdy bunch, and, you know, there's somebody who disagrees with almost everything we do. <laughs> yeah, next question. And you are? Thea uh, Knight of the Cato Institute. Um, Hi. So just going back to, there's been a lot of talk about speech on campus, but going back to public schools, yeah. 
What's your view on the ability of a school to control totally non-school behavior? Because this strikes me as just weird. Um, and I just, I don't see where the authority is for a public school to control the totally non-school behavior of its students. Right. Uh, well, you know, weird is a pretty good word. I think we think it's pretty weird. I think there has to be some sort of connection. I mean, if somebody, we're talking mostly about what kids do on the internet. And there have been cases all over the country where ACLU affiliates have had to defend kids who have done things like criticize a teacher on their Facebook page. There was one kid who published a comment about a hall monitor, and, and the hall monitor was mean, and the child was accused of bullying the hall monitor. Uh, the kids complain about this teacher gave me too much homework. And you know, I, I think that you know, no, you know, you still have a First Amendment right, and if you're doing things that are off campus, then that's particularly not the school's business. It is possible for there to be a nexus with what's happening in the school, even if you are, you know, doing something that's on the internet. You could, you know, be organizing people to, you know, take over the school and, and pose a threat. But short of that, I, I completely agree. And a lot of the work that we do um, in, in schools now is about the internet. A lot of schools, you know, again, kind of, you know, the men of, of, of zeal, they're trying to do a good thing and they're trying to protect the kids. But they often protect them by wanting their passwords and by telling them you can't say that or, you know, that's not a problem, you can't criticize your teachers. And that to me is tinker. Yeah, you know, kids have First Amendment rights. In, especially if they're not connected with school. One of the things that was wrong with the bong hits for Jesus case, which was our case, you know, I think they were just wrong about that. The kid was not on the school campus. How did it hurt the school that he was holding that silly sign during the Olympics rally off campus, not during school hours? Actually, it was school hours, but it wasn't school time. They were allowed to go to the rally during school hours. But, you know, I agree. Oh, only one more, my goodness. So pick a good one. Thank you very much. My name is Brandon Yates, and I'm a student at Colorado Christian University. And so my question is on um, Christianity in schools. And specifically in California, I heard recently, please correct me if I'm wrong, that a bill went through the California legislature that would prevent federal funding from going to schools that maintain a variety of Christian practices, such as requiring chapel attendance. Um, I think that affects schools like Westmont, Biola, and um, Azusa Pacific. And so my question is, where would the ACLU fall on that, considering both freedom of speech in the First Amendment and also the Establishment Clause. Thank you. Right, right. Yeah, I think it's often a hard thing to draw the line between you know, the Establishment Clause on the one hand and freedom of speech and expression on the other. And that's why I think that one of the dividing lines is where students are voluntarily doing things that are expression of their own beliefs, then that's one thing. So if students want to get together and have you know, chapel after school, if that's them that's doing it, that's fine. Um, if it's a public school, not a religious school, if it's a public school and the school is requiring students to do something that's denominational, that, I think, violates the Establishment Clause. We do make exceptions all the time for religious organizations. So if we're talking about you know, a, a, a church school or you know, something that is religiously based, that's not the same as a public school. But it's very hard. Now, I think in the public schools, just generally not just about religion, but the whole idea of free speech, the, what the UCLA study shows is this whole idea that students have, again, a very nice thing, that they, they don't like hate speech. I've talked to any number of student groups and the students always say, well, you know, you, you can't say that. You can't say things that make other students feel bad. And, you know, you can say things that make other students feel bad. What you're not allowed to do is you're not allowed to harass them or bully them. And I think one of the problems, again, a lot of this is a kind of a public relations problem, is that it's often very hard to draw the line. Where do you stop, you know, if, you do, if, if somebody wants to tell a racist joke, they have the right to do that. It maybe is not a good idea, but they have a right to do that. 
do they have a right to carve a swastika into the door of a do the dorm room of another student? I don't think so. Do they have a right to put a picture of a lynching on the door of an African-American student? I don't think so. So again, a complication, which you know, we can maybe also talk about later during the general discussion, the informal discussion, is how you balance the needs of equality, the anti-bullying needs, which are legitimate and real, with the need for free speech. Well, um, you know, thank you very much for joining me in all these complexities. You've been a great group. I wish we had more time for questions. <laughs> <laughs>